This is InfoTrack, the weekly show with information you should know. Here's what's happening on this week's show. What's it like to live with autism? One person says there are misconceptions about autism, along with social and policy gaps in the system that aren't meeting the needs of Americans across the autism spectrum. We've had discussions about autism while talking past autistic people. Oftentimes, autistic people are forced to comply with systems that they didn't necessarily have input in creating. Then, the choice of a college major can have lifelong financial impact. An expert ranks the most and least valuable college majors. We looked at 159 majors for three factors. Number one, median income. But we also tracked unemployment rates among graduates and then how many of them go on to receive a higher degree. Don't go away. Our show comes your way right after this. InfoTrack. The weekly show with information you should know. Here's your host, Chris Whitting. Living with autism has its challenges. There are systemic, social, and policy gaps, along with misperceptions about autism, that must be overcome. Our next guest shares his story of living with autism with InfoTrack reporter Gina Tedesco. Gina? Thanks, Chris. We commonly hear people talk about autism, but are the comments based on truth or myths? And does society provide services that meet the needs of those with autism? Eric Garcia, a journalist with autism, brings us a fresh perspective on this and much more with his book, We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. And he joins me now. Eric, you say your book is designed to show parents, friends, and others what it's like on the spectrum, which you describe as being forced to navigate a world where all the road signs are written in another language. Explain that for us. Right. I mean, I feel that that's the case with any disability, but particularly with autism, because for so long, not only are all the road signs written in a different language, but the road signs that were meant to navigate specifically are written in a different language. And oftentimes what's happened is that we've had discussions about autism while talking past autistic people. We haven't listened to their needs and we haven't asked them what are the best ways for you to navigate the world. So as a result, oftentimes autistic people are forced to comply with systems that they didn't necessarily have input in creating. And as a journalist, I know that you were frustrated by all the myths about autism circulating in the media. Give us some examples of those. The biggest one was the myth about vaccines and autism. That has been completely unfounded. There's absolutely no truth to it whatsoever. But one of the things I noticed when I started writing about it, whether it was people getting measles at Disneyland, you know, because they wouldn't vaccinate the kids because they thought it caused autism, the MMR vaccine did. I realized that there was far too much misunderstanding. And then on top of that, the idea that there was an autism epidemic was in and of itself wrong, because what had happened was there was a change in the diagnostic criteria from the 1980s to the 1990s. And then on top of that, we just got better at tracking it because of laws like the Americans with Disabilities Act and the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act. And then on top of that, there was this idea that autistic people it only affected boys and it only affected white people and that that ignored people of color or there's this idea that autistic people couldn't get married or couldn't work or were only silicon valley type people 
Now, your main idea in the book, though, seems to be that people with autism are not, quote-unquote, broken or in need of fixing, so America should stop trying to do that. Tell us about how autism informs or is sort of part of your identity. I talked about this with a friend of mine, and I said, I think more about being autistic than I do about being a male. When I wake up in the morning, I have to think about, okay, when I go to work, am I going to be in a sensory-friendly environment? Am I also going to be, when I go to the train station, do I have my headphones to make sure that I'm not overwhelmed? So I'm thinking about how accessible and adaptable the world is. But at the same time, I don't think I would be a journalist today if I didn't have that ability to focus almost kind of singularly on a subject. And even though sometimes having trouble reading social cues makes it hard for me to interview people, at the same time, I think that it kind of helps me because I don't have the same kind of regard for social niceties. So it allows me to be kind of blunt with people. Um, so on one end, you have the disability angle. And autism is a disability, make no mistake, which is being overwhelmed by sensory processing. But then on the other end, you also look at the ability angle and you realize that these two things can coexist together. And you also realize that the way we can mitigate the disabilities isn't through changing my sensory processing as much as it's making a sensory and friendly environment for people. Now, there's no cure for autism, but you say there are gaps in services for autistic people. Let's take health care, for example. Give us some idea of some of the kinds of gaps. When I went to Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, I interviewed a woman by the name of Lydia Wayman, who has gastroparesis. And one of the things that I noticed about that, I noticed when I, when I, when I interviewed with her, is that like her doctor said she was too happy or said that she was making up her symptoms because she had been told to keep a positive attitude. So she was trying to keep a positive attitude, but the fact that she was she was too happy, her doctors didn't take her seriously. And she was trying to navigate the social cues. And on top of that, she wound up in a nursing home because that was the only place that was willing to take her. That's an example of social gaps. On top of that, not too far away from Pittsburgh in Philadelphia, on the other side of the state, there was a young gentleman by the name of Paul Corby who he wasn't allowed to get a heart transplant because he was autistic and they assumed that his quality of life was going to be less than that of a neurotypical person's. And that in and of itself, you see once again that it was our expectations that disabled people. His life isn't any less worth living just because he's autistic. But it was the fact that we had our expectations about what an autistic life was that denied him the right to an organ transplant. We're visiting with Eric Garcia, journalist and author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Let's also take education in terms of the gaps. What are they? Certainly, I think one of the biggest gaps in education is just the fact that they're often aren't enough accommodations in higher education. And given, I, I mostly wrote about higher education, so I can't speak to K-12. But I think one of the biggest things is that a lot of times colleges just aren't accessible. And then if you get to university, there's almost this assumption that, well, because you got here, you must not be that disabled. And as a result, educators or administrators often don't take their disability needs seriously. And as a result you wind up getting fewer services, which leads to you not having as much success in the classroom. So it creates this kind of reinforcing cycle. And on top of that, the other problem is that you only get your accommodations and services if you ask for them. They're not built into the system. 
So it puts the onus on the student to ask for these accommodations. Mm. And one mix-up we often hear people use is that autism is a mental disorder rather than a neurological disorder. But at the same time, aren't there quite a few autistic people that also have mental conditions? And so is that kind of where the confusion comes in? I think so, yes. And I think that what happens is a lot of times we focus instead on fixing the autism instead of fixing the very real mental conditions. A lot of autistic people deal with depression or anxiety. Suicide is the second biggest killer of autistic people without intellectual disabilities behind heart disease. But because we focus so much on trying to fix autistic people and fix their autism, we wind up overlooking how to fix, quote unquote, fix or how to deal with their depression or their anxiety or their mental health difficulties. And you've noted that as a Latino, you don't fit the stereotype that some hold of an autistic man. How does, briefly, how does race, ethnicity, or sexual orientation even complicate an autistic person's ability to live a fulfilling life? One of the biggest reasons is that I think a lot of our templates for what an autistic person looks like are based off of white males. The first major study in the United States had 11 children in Baltimore at Johns Hopkins University by the guy by the name of Leo Connor. And I believe it was, there were nine Anglo-Saxon children and two Jewish children. And of those 11 children, also eight of them, I believe, were boys and three of them were girls. So you can see how that leads to a very skewed understanding. And Hans Osberger, all the while in Vienna, in Nazi-occupied Austria thought that it only happened in boys. So as a result, what we think of as autistic is often based on how white autistic boys behave. And so as a result, you know, a lot of black and Latino and Asian American children go undiagnosed. A lot of girls get undiagnosed. And on top of that, we also often overlook how many autistic people are in the LGBTQ plus community. All interesting insights. Eric Garcia, author of We're Not Broken, Changing the Autism Conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. For InfoTrack, I'm Gina Tedesco. Next, ranking the best and worst college majors. That story, straight ahead. Don't go away. InfoTrack will be back right after this. 